This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. One of the things I started doing on bigger snakes, which seems dumb, but it works. It works so well, is I'll actually dive on them, flip over onto my back, hold the head up here and then wrap my legs around the bottom of the body and just like like jujitsu like an arm bar i'll just like straighten out that whole section and as much as they're trying to throw that coil i'm strong enough with my core to just keep that coil from coming up and i've subdued 15 foot animals in 30 seconds flat like just because the second they know that you have the advantage They'd rather play dead and hope you leave them alone than try and fight a losing battle. (laughs) This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How-To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or 
you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. Hey, I'm Kevin Pavlidis, known as Snakeaholic, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. So what are you Dude, been up to, man? With, like, uh, not too much lately. No? Uh, it's been... Well, I'll say from uh, from now, I got some... Uh, are, you, are you taping all this already? Yeah, let's go. Let's roll. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been like... It's an interesting time of year, transitional-wise. So I've been, uh, been laying low a little bit and uh, <laughs> got some... <laughs> some political stuff I'm working on at the moment. So political, what kind yeah. of political stuff? Uh, probably shouldn't get too deep into it, <laughs> but, uh, had some, some conflicts with, uh, management staff, uh, with the Python program. Oh. So, so I got some, uh, some stuff going on there, but that's independent of the actual animals. So I'm, I'm probably going to avoid talking about most of that and stick more to biology and, you know, yeah, actual that's fine. hunting skills. Um, so you said that it is kind of, uh, a, an off time of the year for, for hunting. Is that, why yeah. is that? All right. So this is a really like interesting time of year. Uh, as the temperatures change, we get into that winter pattern. The snake's behavior changes with the weather. So I consider the winter to be the most skillful time of year where you really need to know biology. You really have to have skills. And the reason for that really is in the summer, these snakes are on a feeding pattern. And again, we're talking about invasive Burmese pythons in South Florida. Mm -hmm. So in the summer, it's just purely hunting. They're just looking for prey. They're moving around. So their movements are a lot more random and it, you can't like, you know, I'll, I'll start hunting as the sun goes down. And basically from the sun goes down until three in the morning, my odds of finding a Python are pretty much neutral. They're pretty much the same. You have the same odds. And, um, but once you get into the winter season, it's totally different because these snakes movements are not randomized. Males are looking for females. Females are finding suitable breeding habitat. They're moving back and forth between that. They're changing their body positioning based on temperature, sun positioning, daylight hours, stuff like that. So you really start to have to dial it in. And so for example, like last year in January, um, like my, inner circle, my, my, my mini team inside of our big Python teams, uh, we tracked one female for about three weeks until we found her. And we knew she was in the area cause she had these big basking pads and we could tell she was there. She was big. And it took three weeks of like, we'd find, you know, males near her. We'd find new basking pads that weren't there before, but it took three weeks until we actually found her. And when we did, she was just shy of 15 feet and 118 pounds. Wow. So and three in those three weeks, like you're finding these basking pads where she's been sleeping, I guess, and, and the males, and you know that she's right there. And then do you guys just split up and you're just like looking everywhere or, and you still yep. can't find her for three weeks? Yep. So what does she do? Go underground or what does she do? It's just dense vegetation. So she would just burrow into it and just disappear. And even the day that I actually finally found her, it wasn't obvious. It was a needle in the haystack. Still, I just got lucky. But we had seen her basking pads moving back and forth, and we had it narrowed down to like a maximum 100-yard stretch. We knew it was like 
that or smaller. And it was a tight window. So we would just run that same spot over and over and over again. And she would have new pads here and new pads there. And every time we found a new pad, we'd go down, we'd just sweep the whole area, like just comb through everything, try and follow any sort of tunneling through the grass that we could find, couldn't find her. And then when I finally actually got to her, and again, the pads that we're talking about, there's actually two different types of pads. There's basking pads and breeding pads. And it's just, you see the difference in the animals. So when they're, when they're cold, they're just going to come out, get some sun. They just come out, they make usually circular pads, or they'll just hang a coil out like minimal exposure. They're so secretive. They'll just expose a minimum amount, get that sunlight in. And then when they're done, just right back into the dense vegetation. That's so enough. Basking, like, yeah. it, like depending on the temperature, I guess, but th- that, that would be enough like in moderate temperatures just to have a little bit of a, uh, of exposure to the sun to, to warm yeah, up. So we've actually seen, I've seen it and I heard about it before I saw it, where especially the big females, they'll only hang certain parts of their body out. So for example, they'll hang, they'll expose just like the heart and the head. Like just those critical areas to warm up that blood or even just the heart section, like a six inch section of pattern. They'll just push that out into the sun. So it warms the heart and then all that warm blood circulates through their whole body. So they expose the minimum amount of themselves. So they're not vulnerable, but they still get that temperature. Wow. And the gravid females, like the females, once they have eggs and they're like getting close to laying them, a lot of times they'll only hang out the part of their body that has the egg follicles in it. Hmm. So they'll just hang that out into the sun. The rest of them is off in the bushes, completely concealed. Now, what if it gets really cold? Like say it gets into the fifties, are they going to maintain that kind of uh, behavior? Or do they have to get straight out in the open? Believe it or not, the colder the temperatures, the less likely they are to bask. There's actually a sweet spot. Like once you get too cold, they typically don't come out they'll sit back in the water, which will retain a little bit more, you know, heat, or they'll just pull in a dense vegetation and hold that heat in. But like, if it gets like below 50, like I'll still go out, but like my expectations are way lower than if we have moderate to cool temperatures. Cause they, they always, they have that optimal range where they like to sit. And for me, I've always seen it be right around 80 degrees is like, their optimal temperature, but they can get their bodies like way up or way down. And, you know, but I've always seen right around 80 is like their optimal body temperature. So they'll come out and like, you know, once where you have a night drops down in the mid fifties, as soon as that sun comes up and starts baking in, as soon as they feel the temperatures actually rising, then they'll be like, all right, time to bask. And they'll just come out and get that body temperature up to where they want it in the mid eighties or low eighties or something like that. And then they'll retreat and they'll go back in. Hmm. And that's one of the things I was saying is why it's so like, you need real skill because you need to be able to predict at what time are they going to bask? How long are they going to bask? Where are they going to bask? And it's not just random. Like you dial it in. I knew last, like every year I get, okay, if I'm going to this levee because of this sun angle, I need to be here at this time. And the snakes are most likely to be in this type of vegetation. And you can literally dial it in like that. And some days it was like clockwork, just like they're here this time. Boom, snake, boom, snake, boom, snake, go home. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. And so this time of the year, they've got to 
I mean, at some point they have to eat something, right? So how, how long can they go like it with this behavior without eating anything? A lot of these snakes will actually go the entire winter without feeding at all. Really? So they'll go from now, like November ish until April, May without eating anything. And the females will actually go even longer than that because they have to lay the eggs and incubate them and like gestate and all that to get those babies to hatch out. So they'll stop feeding in like November, December, somewhere around there. And they won't feed again until July at that really? point. So when yeah. they come out of that, do they just, do they just kind of eat, eat something small and then kind of work their way up or do they go right for the freaking they'll big, go for they're extremely they opportunistic so right. they'll just take advantage of whatever they can get however when you it's very obvious when you find them in that state because they're just like borderline emaciated but one of those super interesting things that i've noticed mostly just from doing necropsies on post-gravid females for whatever reason through that like egg laying process and producing babies their their fat follicles actually don't diminish completely like but they're like muscle tissue does hmm. so i guess like just the producing those eggs just pulls so much nutrients from their actual like muscle reserves as opposed to the actual fat follicles because i've had females right? that are just like skin and bones but you open them and they have decent fat reserves hmm. That's really crazy. interesting so it yeah. must be the protein they need the protein for the for the uh, for the eggs, and so they're pulling the protein from their muscles, and then yeah, they, they do. Yeah, that's right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Everybody needs protein if you're gonna get if you're gonna get swole. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm. Uh, I get that a lot because I'm actually. I'm. I don't know if I told you this last time, but I'm actually. This is my fifth year being vegan. Yeah. And uh, so I get the protein questions all the time. <laughs> and and uh, fifth year being vegan. Why did you, yep. why did you go vegan five years ago? So I don't, I've been thinking about it for many, many years. Cause like animals are a hundred percent, like just my life. Like I dedicate so much of my life to, you know, education and saving these animals and working as hard as I can for, you know, to just save animals, save species and take good care of them. And it always felt a little bit, you know, of a conflict in my head about like the fact that, I work so hard to save this species, but then I eat this one. And it just, it was a little bit of a dilemma for me for many years, but I never really thought too deep into it. And it really just hit me in college. Cause like I, you know, I got into the, the slaughterhouse videos and all that propaganda and you know, the factory farming. And at one point it's just like, it just started to sit in. And I remember the day and I didn't make a big deal about it either. I was, I was sitting in my dining hall at college, just eating this big plate of greasy chicken wings and just all of a sudden it just hit me. I was like, I don't want to eat this anymore. And it was like, like that light switch. Didn't tell anyone, didn't make a big stink about it. Just that was it. So, and never looked back. Yeah. So when you do that, like where, what do you go to? Did you already have like a pretty healthy um, uh, amount of, of vegetables in your, in your diet or did you, was it like a big change? So it was, a, it, it was both. Cause I, I've, I kind of grew up like, like vegetables were like my candy. Like yeah, I was always really? eating fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Well, cause I gave up refined sugars when I was like 15. Mm -hmm. So just cause like my dad was doing it, I looked up to him and I was like, I'm not eating sugar either. And, uh, I gave it up 
and ever since then, like, you know, my mom was really big and like, she was always had a garden in our backyard. She always did this, uh, community shared agriculture, mm -hmm. which basically borderline pay a membership to a farm yeah. and they give you a percentage of the crops they earn with that, like that they produce with that money that you send yeah, in. I've, to I've fund seen them. those like a co-op kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I grew up in that. So it was always like, I was always into vegetables and everything like that was a big thing. But in college, I got really into bodybuilding. So when I, I transitioned, basically when I was at my peak in college, I was eating a pound and a half of meat a day, a quart of yogurt every day, a lot of times drinking milk on top of that. And, um, so tons and tons of animal products, like right. just in my diet. So was that and, like a pound, like a, uh, more than a gram of protein per body weight? Is that what you're yep. going for? Yeah, I was, uh, so I, I peaked out at like 190, but I was routinely getting over 200 grams of protein a day. Mm -hmm. So I was following that one gram of protein per body weight and the more is better mentality on top of that. So I was doing that for years and it, it worked. But then when I had to transition, like and the other thing too, is like my, like I'm Greek <laughs> and I was raised Greek too. So when we have holidays our holidays, there's a lot of meat involved. Yeah. Like Greek Easter are like the big thing my dad and I were always hyped about was they always had a goat on a spit nice. and we would literally just sit there and just peel pieces off. And that was like our thing. So it was like, and I, I had said for many, many years when I was younger, like, Oh, I can never be vegetarian. I can never be vegan. And I always said that. And then here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, yeah. um, the Greeks also have, uh, there's a lot of salad and olives and stuff like that in, yeah. the, in the Greek diet too. Right. I mean, it, it, it's meat, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of vegetables and salad, right. Or am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous to go back and uh, visit Greece again and try and like maintain that diet just cause I know like they're very big into meat and just heavy foods. But um, no, I mean, I like, like literally just two nights ago I did a, uh, I tried to, I did like a, like a Greek style tofu that I did. And it was just like, you know, a lot of oregano and olive oil mm. and, you know, heavy salt. <laughs> yeah. Was it good? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Big on, I'm big on lemons too. That's big in their diets. And, yeah. um, but I've been, I've tried to replicate a lot of that. And like one of the things I, I, one of the recipes I go to a lot is like, it's, it's like a, I use tofu to basically imitate like feta. And, uh, cause I grew up, oh dude, I ate a lot of feta when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. That's a good cheese. I, I like feta cheese. Oh, I used to eat so much of that because we used to get it too, like the imported one, like that they would literally ship it over in big barrels mm. and, uh, and then they'd cut you like a big block out of it and all the time. So I, I, I try and find like ways to mimic my comfort foods from when I was a child <laughs> But, uh, and try and like bring those flavors back in. So like, what do you eat on a regular basis? Like what, what does a day look like as a, as a vegan snake hunter? So for me right now, uh, I actually, I'm coming up on my one year anniversary of, of getting back in the gym. So when I moved from New York, I used to live in New York and I moved down here to Florida to, you know, wrestle alligators and catch pythons. And when I moved, everything kind of got jumbled. So my like five year streak in the gym, I abandoned it for like almost two years. So I'm right now coming back up on my one year anniversary of getting back in. So since I got back into the gym, I obviously had to take charge of my diet again and get 
you know, start bulking and increase my caloric intake, keep that surplus going. So right now I'm eating close to 4,000 calories a day. And I start the bulk of that with just a massive shake. Like I literally just fill the blender with raw oats, oat milk, uh, peanut butter, hemp seeds, flax seeds. Uh, I have these mixed berries bags and then a bunch of bananas and I can actually fit 3000 calories into that blender. And it has around a hundred grams of protein in that just from the plants that I put in it. Hmm. So automatically I'm starting my day out with once I actually finish that shake, I've intake 3000 calories over hundred grams of protein, over 80 grams of fat and just of natural healthy fats and like three, 400 grams of carbs. But like my, it's already a huge intake. And for me, I've recalculated, um, my protein intake based on a equation I got from, um, Nimai Delgado, who's actually, uh, he was the first IFBB professional, uh, bodybuilder, like that was vegan. So he, I got a lot of cool stuff from him as I was transitioning and doing my research. And I guess that's really the big thing is whenever you start something new, the knowledge has to be there. You have to do your research, you have to learn. So he gave me an equation that instead of this, like one gram per pound of body weight, instead I go with, um, so we calculate our lean muscle mass. So you assume how much your body fat percentage is, you subtract that out, you get your lean muscle mass, you do that. And then from the, cause you know, you don't have to feed the fat, you only feed the muscle. And then from that, there's an additional FDA recommendation that says 0.8 times 0.8 or 0.9 times that. So I use those numbers and I found that for me, my intake should be between 127 grams of protein and 142 per day. So if I'm starting out with a hundred and I only need like, you know, 30 to 40 grams of protein, that's so easy. You're going to get that in any meal. So for me, figuring out how to get my shakes up and the protein and caloric intake up makes my, whatever other meals I get, I know I'm going to hit my protein intakes for the day and it's not going to be a problem. (laughs) So it's actually a lot easier than I thought it would be, but that's only after like I used to, I was very big into calorie tracking everything. I have a food scale and mm-hmm. I really like my fitness pal and chronometer. And I just use those two to track everything that I'm eating. But building that knowledge basis lets me eat intuitively now because I actually know what I'm eating, Right, which is really a bigger issue in our society as a whole is so many people are just unaware of what they're eating and what it does to their bodies. No matter what your diet is, most people don't even think about it. Most people look at a food label and they have no idea what any of that stuff means. Right. Unless there's one thing, one particular thing that they're, that they're told they should track like calories or fat grams or, or, or protein yeah. or something. And you go straight for that. But the the best that I've ever done is um with my diet is probably zone um which is 40 percent uh carbohydrate 40 percent of your calories come from carbohydrates 30 from protein Mm. 30 from fat and um it could be from any source you could have a you could be totally on the vegan plan and 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 have your proportions be that but when when i did that for really really strict for about five or six years just like you're talking about, I measured and weighed every single thing that I ate. 
And you only have to do that for a little while before you can look at something and go, yeah, that's about, that's about 30 grams of protein. That's, you know, the, that particular food is incredibly high in carbohydrates. So I'm, I can only have a very small amount of that rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, and most of those foods come in bags that that, (laughs) that they measure by the pound, you know, and it's like, you know, that's where you get way off track as you eat that kind of stuff. And you're eating so many calories and so much carbohydrates and really don't have any idea that that's what's going in. And you're, and I don't know, my ratios would get all messed up. And then once I got that 40, 30, 30 down to where I was eating that every single meal and hitting the protein requirement for the day, everything was great. And I've, I've done some semblance of that since then, you know, and it it really makes me feel a lot better. You put a lot of thought into that, but when you, when you eat a, uh, a 3000 calorie shake with, with a hundred grams of protein, then what, like what happens for the rest of the day? That's a huge amount of stuff going in. At that point, I could pretty much eat whatever I want for the rest of the day. Like, and I always like, I, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've eaten food in the last year that I didn't cook myself. Mm. So I'm very big into that. I'm always cooking for myself. I buy as organic as possible. I like to buy in bulk if I can. And there's a little farmer's market every Saturday. That's only a couple blocks from me. So I try and go there and support that small business. And uh, they're very like, they try and get everything organic too. So I love doing that. But the shakes is like, I'll typically like, a lot of times it'll fill like two mason jars. I'll try and chug one before I leave. And then I'll take the other one with me and just bring it in a cooler. Hmm. So all day, I'm just slowly just swigging away at it. And just that kept, that keeps me going through the entire day. And it's nice too, because it's evened out like hmm. those bodybuilder meals. Cause I come from a caloric deficit. I'm naturally a twig. So I've had to work really hard to put on any sort of weight and it's the eating that really does it. And just sitting there and just trying to eat straight through 4,000 calories a day is of vegetables. <laughs> yeah. 4,000 calories of vegetables. Like that's like, that's like, 80 pounds of broccoli. Like you you couldn't possibly, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that's what I learned when I did the zone. So, so much is it's like, okay, you can have, you can have a half a slice of bread or you can have three pounds of broccoli, you, you know, whichever (laughs) one you want, you know, and and you just start looking at these foods and you're like, seriously, like it is really that calorically and, and carbohydrate dense that, you know, you have like, you have like a shot glass full of apple juice would equal, um, I don't know, uh, a, a, a bushel of green beans. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like you yeah. couldn't possibly eat that much. Like if you're only eating vegetables, man, you gotta be putting some, 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 um, uh, oils on them or something to get, 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 the, the nutrition yeah. up because it's so hard to eat that much. I mean, yeah. lettuce, like you could eat like three heads of lettuce for yeah. the amount of carbohydrates you would get in, in, you know, eight grapes. Yep. <laughs> you know? That's why it takes just a little bit of knowledge. Like that knowledge has to be there no matter what you're doing. And for me with this stuff, I've really like, I've found a couple power foods that really just like get me through. And honestly, peanut butter is one of the big ones. Like I've just noticed that like, Oh, this stuff is loaded with protein. It's loaded with healthy fats and it just like jumps that your calories up so much. So I started adding that in, uh, hemp seeds has been a big hack for me Mm. too. 
because it just protein through the roof right away. Again, omega threes, omega sixes. And, um, which is another one that everybody tells you you can't get from plants. And, uh, yes, can. And <laughs> what, uh, omega three and six, omega threes and six. Everyone always said like, cause whenever you hear about those, everyone's always talking about fish oil, mm-hmm. right? That's what everyone always says. But the thing is that the fish don't produce it. It's actually the algae that produce it and the fish concentrate it in their bodies. Hmm. So there's natural, it automatically doesn't come from those animals. So for me, I wanted to supplement that. And that's where the, uh, just doing some, you know, YouTube research for people that have, you know, been doing this diet for like a very, very long time. And then on top of that, you start like chronometer was really good. So like my, the two apps I use for, for calorie tracking is my fitness pal and chronometer. And my fitness pal is really easy for like, overall macros like carbs fats proteins chronometer breaks down every like if you're doing fats it breaks down every single lipid you're doing protein it breaks down every single amino acid and it breaks it down like that so tracking in that was way more detailed and that's how i was able to get you know a much better grasp on what actual nutrient components like those micronutrients that your body needs wow and that's those hemp seeds like hemp seeds and flax seeds great source of omega-3s omega-6s really good for your body really essential nutrients there that a lot of people aren't paying attention to at all mm-hmm. so i just you know get the hemp seeds in on everything <laughs> yeah so are you tracking this over time like, yeah. I mean, I mostly track, like I kind of do it loosely now because I've found like a pretty stable diet that works for me. And I have a healthy workout routine that everything is in line. So I really use like my strength and my body weight and visually looking in the mirror and seeing the results to see where I'm at. But what I typically do is I'll see growth and then it'll start to plateau. And every time it plateaus, I'm like, all right, I got to go back in. I start tracking again. I pull out the apps. I pull out the food scale, figure all that out. And then boom, it'll start to go up again. It plateaus and it's cyclic like that. Hmm. And you're, you're basing most of your success on putting on weight. Yeah. Yep. Because you're, yeah. when I started uh, like this, like I'm coming up on about a year now of getting back in the gym. When I started, I think I was down to 164 pounds right now. I'm sitting at 192. Wow. So in like a year. And the really cool thing is I looked at my progression photos from the last time I was 192 versus now, because that, that last time was pre vegan. Now I'm vegan. And the difference is like crazy. Like I'm so much leaner, like everything just looks like I, I remember back then you could see to my face, Hmm. like that. I was just retain, like just forcing myself into this caloric surplus and just retaining all this extra body fat and everything. And I'm a lot leaner this time around. My recovery time is faster. I'm a lot more awake. I'm not groggy. It's just like night and day difference. Hmm. When I actually see it, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's cool. Now, have you, um, have you looked at your, at your blood over time? Like, do you go to a doctor and get your blood tested? I've never had, like, I've never been cause I've never really had an issue. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, for you me, know, like- you're just so, you're just so into it and you're tracking. It's like, it, it's, I find it to be interesting if you're tracking so closely, like, is that mirrored in what's actually happening in your blood? Right. Like, yeah. you know, and you would think it is, but who knows? I mean, like, yeah. I don't know. There's some new, there's some different 
things. Like if you go to your doctor and you ask them to do all those tests, it could be very expensive, but there's some other, um, I don't know, there's this one, I think it's called inside tracker and, and it will, it'll track all different kinds of stuff, your micronutrients, everything <clears throat> just from a couple of drops of blood, I guess that you send in. And then they, I don't know, it, it tracks it on an app and everything. I've thought about, you know, looking at that and seeing, cause you know, as you, it's like the more you get into it, the more you get into it. Right. I guess until oh, yeah. there's, until there's, um, until there's a reason not to, but the reason not to is that you're, you're, you're just constantly seeing the results that you want to, whether that's losing weight or gaining weight or, or getting leaner or, or just getting, you know, more muscular either way, whatever it is, you're succeeding in your, in your goals. And so then all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't need to track this anymore. Everything I'm doing is working towards the goal that I'm setting. But then just like you said, you hit that plateau and it's like, okay, pull back out the scale for me. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, <laughs> I eat, I eat what I think is a, is a healthy diet, but I, I, my portions are always messed up. I love to eat. I mean, yeah. I like, I really like to eat. I can eat a lot of food and, yeah. uh, and I enjoy eating a lot of food, but I don't need to eat a lot of food. And if I'm weighing and measuring, I'm really surprised. I'm like, wow, that seems like a really small meal, but then you eat it. It's like, well, I'm going to eat again in, you know, a few hours and that's going to be fine for me to get, get through. But the, the meal prep is 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 huge for me of having having yeah. the next meal ready to go that's why i was asking you like what what do you do like when you're going way out into the middle of the everglades like are you do you have your food prepped you're, you're taking a shake in the morning it's, it's taking the half a shake in that's the after, I, afternoon yeah and then nothing else i'll eat throughout the day but like if whenever i'm i'm busy my go-to is make a shake bring it with me mm. that way like whenever i start to feel that hunger creeping in grab the shake drink as much as I can, cap it, put it back, keep going. And it's just a constant like refuel. It's so easy. So and for me, like being on like a 4,000 calorie diet for years, you start to lose that like enjoyment in your food. Like, and especially cause on top of that, like back when, you know, pre vegan too, that was before I really figured out the shake thing. I was drinking shakes to like help get my calories in, but I was trying to eat as much as possible. So when you, I was eating like, like two pounds of brown rice a day oh. on top of like that other pound and a half of meat a day. And then on top of that, like just a quart of yogurt every day, like just sitting there, just eating it. You just hit this. It, when you start the meal, you enjoy it. And then you hit a wall yeah, and you're like, uh, all right, here we go. You ever watch those, you ever watch those videos of the strong men, like the world's strongest men and what they eat and how they have to do it. And, yeah. and they, they go shopping and, and they like have three shopping carts and they just load <laughs> that thing full of bacon and, and steaks and eggs and yep. everything they can possibly get in there. And then, then there's this one video that I was watching and it's, it's like shows the guy's whole day of eating. And it's this, every meal is this, you think they're cooking for like six people. And it's just this one dude eating and then he goes and works out. Then he comes back and he does that again. And then the alarm clock goes off and it's like three o'clock in the morning and he goes in and eats a full meal in the middle of the <laughs> night. And he's like, this is the worst part. This is the part yep. that I will not miss when I retire from this. I will never miss waking up and eating a full meal in the middle of the night. And just like you say, it's like he, he was saying, you know, I would rather starve 
then then do this then then yep. just cram this food in he's like but there's yeah. there's no way i can be as strong as the rest of these guys if i if my calories go down and you know i'm eating a giant pizza in the middle of the night because they're just <laughs> they just want calories and calories and calories and protein yep. and wow it's cool man that's awesome man that you got that that you're so uh dialed in on that and it's working yeah you feel what do you feel like so it's really interesting to compare because I didn't think about it much, but in hindsight, I'm looking back on it. So it wasn't like I didn't feel the transition as much as I'm looking at the two points and comparing and definitely like I'm a high energy person to begin with. But like on top of that, I remember like when I would just eat like a pound of meat and then go to the gym, I would, I would routinely fall asleep in the incline bench press. <laughs> Like just that angle was just yeah. so conducive yeah, to just laying back. And I remember a couple times like waking up, like, like, all right, got to finish the set. Let's keep it going. Wow. <laughs> just, and that didn't have anything now, to do with your sleep patterns or anything like that. You think this is entirely well, it, diet related? For me, I think it's mostly diet related uh, because I actually have like a very, like my sleep schedule is a lot rougher now as it is just between like, flipping back and forth between catching gate. I mean, wrestling alligators and catching pythons, my sleep patterns all over the place. Cause like some days I got to be up at 7am to wrestle gators for nine hours. And then I have to be out all night and get home at 7am from catching snakes. And that flip flop back and forth is brutal on the body. But, uh, so when if you're doing something like that, are you taking just a couple of shakes, no vegetables? No, you're not taking anything else. You're not taking snacks or anything else. Or do you just do that on I shakes? Use, like, I don't snack on much out there. I'll try and eat a meal like before I leave. And like when I get back or definitely like first thing in the morning and just keep everything going. But for the most part, when I'm out in the field, the shakes is how I get through it. And then on top of that, a lot of times we have these, uh, we have like pretzels and, you know, chips and stuff. We're just yeah. snacking on. But actually, the, the physical eating keeps you awake huh. when you're out there for, you know, six to eight hours at a time, just staring at the ground. Like, just that chewing will keep you <laughs> awake sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. So it, what's interesting about this is you're, 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 you're turning into a snake, dude. You're, you're turning into a <laughs> snake and an alligator. You're, you're having one giant yep. meal. And then you're, then you're, then you're going out and doing stuff, right? Like yeah. that's, that's, that's what, I mean, there's a lot of snakes that do that. Right. And certain times of the oh, year, yeah. that's what they do. Yeah. These, especially as they get bigger too, like the big, big, like hundred plus pound females, they might only eat three times a year, but when they do, it's typically a huge prey item. So they'll like eat an entire deer, an entire hog, a, full size alligator and they'll eat like two or three times in that year. But what the science has found is that they actually will retain on average 33% of the body weight of the animal they consume. Wow. So if they eat a hundred pound deer, they're going to gain 33 pounds. Wow. On average. Wow. And so when, when we see these, these viral videos of, of uh, a python in the Everglades with the, the stomach has burst or, or somebody's cut it open or whatever, and there's an alligator inside of it or a crocodile mm. or I don't know. How does, a, how does a snake eat an alligator that is that size? I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem possible. Like when you see yeah. those videos of, and, and it's, it, 
I don't know. Some of them could be doctored. I don't know. They could be fake videos. I don't know. But I know that it happens. You, you last time you yeah. were on the show, you told us that like they eat alligators, right? So right, I've how does it. how does a how does a, a snake eat an alligator? Do they squeeze it until it dies and then they try to eat it, or what? What's the process? Do you know? Yeah, I do actually, because I've seen it in action, and that's actually how I figured out how they do it was by witnessing it firsthand. And you did that because in the you're wild? right, like. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Three, three times I've found pythons actively constricting alligators. Two of those three times I was able to actually save the alligator. The alligator survived and swam away. Third time it felt like a car ran that thing over just from the amount of pressure it put on it. Just ribs were shattered. Eyes were popped out. So, so powerful. But the really interesting thing that I've noticed is on the bigger gators, when a bigger python grabs a bigger alligator, there's it's you know a battle of the titans. They're so strong that like they can't really overpower it the same way that like they overpower like a rat or a raccoon or something like that, where they just squeeze them out, restrict the blood flow, restrict the air, and just knock them out, and then just suppress it till the whole system shuts down. They can't necessarily do that with an alligator. So what I've witnessed them doing is they'll actually lock in the coils. They'll constrict them and just hold them underwater. Mm-hmm. And they'll let go with their mouth and bring their head above the water oh. while the alligator is trapped underneath, wrapped in coils. So and they actually drown Dirty them. trick. It is, is but it's fascinating trick. biology that they've figured out how to do that. I know. So, But but the thing that I'm having a, a difficult time grasping is, is you, you've got an alligator that's just laying there. And you've got the snake that somehow is going to try to eat this thing is it going to just bite down and hold on to it and the alligator may start to run off or how is it getting the coils around the alligator because it seems like you know alligators can run like really fast right so if 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 this thing is next to it why would it why doesn't it just get out of there how does it surprise the alligator or hang on to it long enough to to get the coil. I mean, I get it when they get the coils around like that's Yeah. yeah I, I see yeah. how that can happen. And I can yeah. even see how like the skull might not be, it may be too big for the alligator. I could see how they could just crush that thing down into mm-hmm. almost nothing and then eat it. I got that part, but like the initial attack, what do you think is happening there? So the thing is they're both apex predators. They're both stealth hunters. Mm. Um, like a lot of people think, without knowing these pythons that they're sit and wait, like they'll coil up and just sit spring loaded and whack, grab something. They can do that occasionally, but the vast majority of the time they're slow stalkers. They just move really slow, find a scent trail and just follow it very slowly till they find the prey item. Once they hit it. um, Well, actually this is um, my roommate, Ryan uh, and his, you know, product company, uh, feel the berm products. He's uh, this is a skull he did for a client, but what you could see in the teeth tons. is just how, yeah, they're, and they're all facing backwards and they're all recurved. Yeah. So like the second that that thing hits and locks in, if it penetrates the skin, it's, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Like but that. that's, that's the other thing that I'm, I'm kind of puzzled about is like an alligator skin is like, I mean, super hard to penetrate i would imagine 
<laughs> but, well, the osteoderms, those actual solid bone plates, yeah. they're not going to get through those. Right. But really, like in between every solid bone plate, there's a gap. Oh. And there's certain areas on a gator that are, you know, softer tissue. The neck is softer. The arms are softer. It's a little bit easier. But really, all they need to do is just, I mean, they got so many teeth. They're all so sharp and so recurved. All they have to do is get enough traction just to hold on because the second that they get that, they immediately wrap. Mm-hmm. And um, and so like what the, I see you doing at the at the park, you walk up on these alligators, right? And they're just laying there. And and I see this, yeah. you know, like like Manny, um, you know, Tarzan of the Sea. He was in the Keys. Yeah, you know yeah. who I'm talking about. He he yeah. would have all the videos of him going down, and there's just an alligator laying on the bottom. And I would imagine that they just that there are times where they just lay there and a snake could actually sneak right up on them and bite them on the neck. Right. Yeah. Without them, maybe their eyes are closed. I I don't, I don't know. Like it just seems like I wouldn't want to sneak up on one, but like I I get everything that you're saying about once they get bite them on the neck that they can get through that. But it just still seems like alligator skin is super tough and the, but a Python is tougher, I guess. Well, it actually, at a certain size, it really depends on who grabs who first or who gets the better grip Yeah, is really what it comes down to. Because like gators have incredible power. They have incredible jaw pressure, but that's really all they have. Once you get the jaws secured, there's not like they can knock you off your feet with their tail and stuff like that. But they don't, once the jaws are secured, there's very few ways they can still defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So once a python chokes out their ability to bite them, they don't really have much else in them. So that's where it comes into play. But they, uh, I mean, once they wrap those coils, like it, it doesn't take much for them to get traction. And then once they get those coils and it happens so fast too, like even when we catch them and it's defensive behavior, every time I throw a rookie on a, on a Python and they grab it, they, they get wrapped up in coils like instantly. And mm. then they have to explain to them how to unwrap the coils and get out of that. But if you don't know what's coming and you don't expect it, your reactions are not going to be calculated. They're going to be randomized. And that random like jolt reaction is a huge vulnerability because the second you act irrationally and just thrashing, yeah. Yeah, slowly it goes, start it's wrapping. It's like, that's the yeah. worst, worst thing that you could do. So if, if, <clears throat> if you were, like, like your, what do you tell the rookie? Like, how do you tell them to unwrap the coils? Like what, what is the, what is the process? Start of the tail and go like, just uncoil it in the same way. Like if you grab a coil and try and separate it, you're never going to be able to do right. it. They're way right. too strong. You literally have to uncoil them. So you do that. And then once you have control of the head, the head is really like, I've noticed this particularly, um, that like the main thing they want to protect is their head. It's their most vulnerable area. It's their most important part of the body. They protect that with everything. So like head and the heart. So if you can, their favorite thing to do is once you get that head grab, they immediately throw a coil around their head and they'll try and just pull their head back out and like wipe your hands off. But if you can prevent them from getting that head coil, they tend to give up a lot faster once they realize that like, they can't protect their head. Wow. So it's a little bit of like a little psychological thing that we've worked with. And I've found uh, one of the things I started doing on bigger snakes, which seems dumb, but it works. It works so well is I'll actually dive on them, flip over onto my back, 
hold the head up here and then wrap my legs around the bottom of the body and just like like jujitsu like an arm straighten bar them out, yeah. i'll just like straighten out that whole section and as much as they're trying to throw that coil i'm strong enough with my core to just keep that coil from coming up and i've subdued 15 foot animals in 30 seconds wow. flat like wow. just because the second they know that you have the advantage They'd rather play dead and hope you leave them alone than try and fight a losing battle. <laughs> wow. That's interesting because like in jujitsu or wrestling or whatever, there's so many counters to to certain moves that are the opposite of what you think that you should do. And what, you know, you get a, a beginner wrestler or whatever that gets like in a headlock, for for example, and they they start trying to go away from the headlock, which is putting them in a deeper headlock it's like deeper and deeper that's exactly what you want them to do but that's your first initial reaction where you should go close to the body and get as close as you possibly can to the body and roll through it but it, it's just a counterintuitive kind of thing because every instinct the first time that ever happens to you is to try to get away and you're only getting further in right and that would mm -hmm. seem like the same thing that you're talking about with these snakes like you want to like get away and every time that you extend out and you're getting away they're getting a tighter and tighter and tighter coil it's exactly what they yeah. want you to do but you're saying mm -hmm. you got to do the opposite well i don't know that maybe i mean maybe there's some maybe there's some perspective python hunters out there that are listening to this show that are going to throw some <laughs> jujitsu on a, on a Python. But uh, I, what yeah. I was interested in early was when you were talking about this time of the year and how difficult it is to find a Python for a guy like you and a whole team of guys like you. So that would tell me that it's a pretty safe time to be walking around in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> this is the time yeah. I'm going, right? Like it, what would be the chances of you accidentally running into um you know a a big snake up there right now? You did say you were finding the males really easy. Well, this is actually a time of year where they move a lot. Uh particularly the larger class animals, they we call it staging. They basically have to get into position for the breeding season because the summer feeding grounds and winter breeding grounds are two different habitats. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they might be close by, but we've seen snakes go, you know, several miles in a week to go back from where they were feeding to back to where they want to breed. So they're transitioning to those habitats. So even though like the temps are coming down, it's a little uncomfortable, their biological switch goes off and says, I have to get to my breeding ground. So they'll actually move quite a bit, but you're not going to see those smaller class animals, which tend, you know, the bigger you get, the fewer there are in that size class. Hmm. So those smaller animals that we see all summer long, those, you know, four, five, six, seven footers, even those are younger animals haven't necessarily sexually matured yet. They're just feeding, but there's more of them. So you see a lot of those this time of year, it starts to taper. So you're not going to see those animals. So you'll see fewer pythons, but your average size starts to go mm. up. So, which is really fun for me. Yeah, <laughs> like you're the you're the record hunter. You want to get out there and catch the biggest one you possibly can. So, <laughs> so yeah, seems like a good time. So last time what we talked, we talked about the overall numbers in the Everglades and that, you know, efforts like what you do and other other professional hunters and the whole program from the state um, seem to be having an effect. What do you think now? Like where where are we now with the numbers of of 
Uh, let's just talk about just just the Python right now in the Everglades. Uh, I don't know how much of an impact we're having on the overall population, just because the Everglades really is just so vast. It's just a huge landmass and uh, or water mass, however you want to look mm-hmm. at it. Yeah. But um, it's a huge area, and when you realize that most of the areas that we remove pythons from are levees, roadways, you know, stuff like that. And then you look at the whole Everglades and realize how few of those strips of land there really are. There's so much land out there that I don't know necessarily how much of an impact we're having in the overall ecosystem, but in isolated areas, we can obviously make a difference. And for me, I just never fixate on the entire population. For me, it's not about that. For me, it's about every single individual that you remove, every single, let me restart that, every single invasive apex predator that we remove from that ecosystem takes a little bit of the pressure away from those native animals that are competing for the same resources or the ones that are getting eaten, a little bit of pressure away from them. And that gives them a chance to rebound and adapt and learn new skills to avoid being predated and get their breeding cycles back on. So I focus on that. And then particularly as we get into this winter breeding season, that's when it's really, really important to get those big females out because those females can produce, you know, the smallest clutch I've ever seen was 15 eggs. And on average, I'd say it's usually around 30. So that's a small female. What's the survivability of 30 eggs? What's the and I've seen over 60 eggs in a clutch before. So if you see 30 eggs, how many of those are going to make it to, uh, to a four footer? Uh, so they have a nearly a hundred percent hatch out rate. So almost all the eggs are typically viable and hatch out. It's a very small percentage that don't hatch. Uh, but of those babies, the majority of them do wind up getting consumed. Like there's almost a 90% mortality rate from hatchling to, you know, those eight footers that we see mm-hmm. almost 90% mortality, um, which is, so what's eating it them? Sounds, sounds like a good thing. But it, it's actually a little scary the more that you think about it. Because at first, you're like, oh, well, most of them don't survive. That's great. That's a good thing. However, look how many there still are, <laughs> which that means that as many as survived is still like 10% of the amount of animals that were introduced into the ecosystem that year. Wow. And so um, what, what eats the small snakes, the 90% that don't make it? Uh, pretty much everything. Birds, um, birds. I yeah, would imagine like birds are the bird. Birds will get them. That's a big one. Um, alligators will get them. You know, even when they're real small, fish, turtles, mm-hmm. you know, raccoons, possums, like everything eats them. But that's how a lot of these reptiles function in general. Is just they take the you know, they well reptiles and fish really is is a big thing for them. They have as many babies as they possibly can because they know out of that giant group, statistically only one or two will make it to adulthood. So they know that all their babies are going to get picked off. That's why they have these massive volumes. And it's the same thing with alligators too. Alligators have big clutches and of that clutch, they anticipate one or two will make it to adulthood. And that's how like the numbers stay 
at a stable rate. Do you have any idea what the, um, like the alligator population in the Everglades and the crocodile population in the Everglades, how those are doing? Because there was a time when, when they're very concerned about the crocodile and then now the crocodile yeah. makes it down, down into the keys. You see the crocodile all over the Everglades. Um, and obviously there's more, I would think like if they're, if yep. they're expanding their range, it probably means that there are a lot of them wherever they came from and they're, they're looking for new, new areas, new habitats. So do you know anything about that? Yeah. So crocodiles specifically, they, uh, it's one of the things to note is that there's never been a massive population of American crocodiles in South Florida. It's always from from the get-go, from nature, it's always been a small population, mostly because of their like temperature requirements and stuff like that. They're really just on the southern tip of Florida. Mm -hmm. It's very rare for one to even make it up as high as Fort Lauderdale. It happens, but it's very rare. They're mostly just on that southern tip. So from what I like the last time I asked someone for the actual numbers, uh, they said there's around 2,000 crocodiles in South Florida. Those numbers may have gone up uh, since the last time I talked to them, but I know University of Florida, you know, UF and the Croc Docs, they do a lot of that research out there. And I'm friendly with a lot of people and I volunteered with them a few times, but uh, they monitor all that. And uh, uh, when I, I, the last house I lived in, uh, we actually had um, two, I, it was Chris Gillette and Ed Metzger. And Ed Metzger used to be the head biologist for University of Florida. So at the time, he was like running that program. And then Chris Gillette was, you know, a big biologist and he was, you know, volunteering with them all the time and doing the same kind of research of these, you know, cap, capture, mark, take all the data and then re release all these animals. So they had a lot of insight into that. And uh, I, I didn't download all of their information into my brain, but I have some tidbits from the stories that they've told and the data that they're aware of. Yeah. So uh, the difference between an alligator and a crocodile, as far as like what, what you do at the, at the park, would you, would you like, you can wrestle these alligators all the time. You're very comfortable mm -hmm. with it. Like if you go to your Instagram, you see you're, you're doing all <laughs> kinds, you're putting your face in their mouth. You're doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's uh, you, you've obviously got that down and maybe those, those critters that you're dealing with are a little bit habituated and they allow that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, but let's just say that the North American crocodile wasn't an endangered species and you could do the same things with with that just hypothetically like i know mm -hmm. you can't keep one in a in a park i don't think you can but would you be able to wrestle with the crocodile like you can an alligator what is there a difference between the animals and aggression or or their mouth structure or whatever that would not allow you to be doing the same kind of things that you can with an alligator theoretically you can uh one of the really interesting things about those two animals is that genetically American alligators, American crocodiles are more genetically different than we are from chickens. They just happen to look alike. Wow. Just because that model for survival works so well that, that is, they've been virtually unchanged for millions of years. So it's like so coevolution. Yeah. Like what is so different about them? That I've never dove into like right. the actual biology of it, but I know that statistic. And so knowing that, they're very different, but they're also very similar. And so personality wise, 
you could do everything that we do with alligators that you could do it with crocodiles. However, specifically the crocodiles tend to be way more athletic mm. and they're also, you know, when you start getting into other species like, you know, Nile crocs and Australian saltwater crocs, they really are built to take down human sized prey or bigger. So right? they actually yeah. look at us slightly different because the American alligators, like as much as they are strong, powerful apex predators in the Everglades ecosystem, naturally there's not a lot of animals that would be anywhere close to the size or shape of a human. So they don't naturally look at us as a prey item. They're really looking at like turtles, ducks, fish, raccoons, you know, smaller size animals. So they don't naturally look at us, but then you look at these other animals that they have animals that look like that. Right. And they start to prey on them. So there is a slightly different mentality there that you have to note, but like I've asked, you know, that question, really most of my information from that comes from uh, Chris Gillette or Gator Boys Chris, mm-hmm. <laughs> as he goes by. And uh, he's told me many times, yeah, you could do the exact same thing with a crocodile. For our purposes, we don't really have a, an interest in doing that because all of our alligators that we work with are nuisance alligators that are trapped out of people's backyards from permits issued through Florida Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. But it's possible to do it. We just don't really have the need or desire to do it. Theoretically, totally possible. Though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. I mean, when you think back about the old videos with uh, Steve Irwin and you said mm-hmm. that the crocodile is more athletic than the than the alligator. I mean, my God, what that guy was doing uh, and he and those those crocodiles would basically have almost all four legs off the ground and be balanced on their tail, you know, to to get what what he was after. And there was this one video that I remember very clearly. And he was, uh, he was feeding these crocodiles and they were standing up for him. And then he slips down into the mud and he's like backing up into the, into this mud. And it's like, man, that just seems like worst case scenario. He, all of a sudden his mobility was minimized, but that guy was cool as a cucumber. Always. He stayed so cool. And, uh, and, you know, he, he wasn't in a, in a bad position there, but you know, the, the crocodile does come to the keys and it, it, they're, they're around. I mean, you, people have them on their dock, they see them in their neighborhoods and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a species, I guess they're, are they endangered or threatened? Um, but I know that when that happens, it's not like you can just call anyone to, to, take them away. You got to call the state, I guess. And, and yeah. who, who comes to get a crocodile? It's very specific people. Um, the thing with crocodiles. So since they are, you know, protected under the endangered species act and they're, you know, there's only about 2000 of them. They're very protected. They don't do the same thing that they do with alligators, alligators. You know, you have an alligator in your backyard, you call FWC. They say, do you feel threatened by it? You say yes, boom, dead gator. That's it. Someone will remove it. Uh, with crocodiles, they have a three-strike policy the last time I checked. So they'll relocate that animal three times. If it continues to be a nuisance, then they'll try and put it in captivity or remove it from the system. There um, is like a captivity for crocodiles, right? At the northern end oh, of, yeah. the, of You of can Pilar actually Gunner. own like it, it's it's fairly easy to get proper permits to own an American crocodile in South Florida. When I say easy, I don't mean for an individual, but for a facility that has, you know, proper cage requirements and training and all that, they can get an American crocodile. It's not that complicated. 
but it's not one pulled from the wild. It's, right. you know, bred in captivity. Huh. So there's actually a lot of places that have them. Hmm. And uh, I even have friends that own them. Really? But, <laughs> Yeah, man, I don't know what I would want with a with a crocodile as a pet. I think that would be like the worst. It's thing one ever. of those things that we always just say, like, if you don't love it, you're not going to last a minute, dude. But, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, what do you yeah. what do you do? Like, you you want a crocodile? Like, I I've never really um uh knew anything about a uh about a um like a lion or the cats that people have as pets. But yeah, you know, crazy. I don't know. Uh, some people are into it though. Like you, yeah. you got like uh, snakes. You probably had snakes all your life. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. No, I got tons of friends with crazy animals down here. Uh, one of the the new people I just met, uh, he goes by crocodile Kyle and he's got an incredible collection down here, like different crocodiles and everything. He actually bred Nile crocodiles like within the enclosure naturally whether it was, I think it was last year or the year before that, but he's got these crazy enclosures he's had built for him. He's got incredible animals, takes such good care of them. But even down here with the venomous snakes, a lot of people ask about that. And uh, I know a lot of people like uh, Will Nace, very good friend of mine. He's got a you know huge collection, tons of animals, YouTube channel, Tyler Nolan, tons of venomous snakes, like beautiful enclosures, really successful YouTube channel uh, Chandler's wildlife, uh, you know, tons of venomous snakes, huge collections. And the really cool thing about all those people I just named, uh, is I am in large part, uh, one of the people that feeds their king cobras. Ooh. Like some of them almost me exclusively. Cause I catch Burmese pythons, which is a natural prey species for the king cobra. So it's this, wow. this cool little network that I got going on that when I catch pythons that are the, the proper size for their animals, coil them up, throw them in the freezer. We deep freeze them for a, a minimum of two weeks. Some people wait as long as three months to kill off any potential pathogens that could be in them because they are a wild animal. And then they thaw them out and feed them to their king cobras. So it's this beautiful little like circle of this is an invasive species. We're removing it and nothing goes to waste. Wow. And like these people are growing these king cobras in South Florida. And I actually just expanded that within the last year to actually be able to supply King Cobra owners who are out of state with, you know, Burmese pythons that I've caught here in South Florida. So we're taking this invasive problem here and using it to help these reptile keepers like all around the U S who are like looking for food for their King Cobra. So somebody that has a, somebody that has a King Cobra and they're keeping it. Yeah. Do they get it out and play with it? Like, what do you, Oh yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. My God. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just seems like, I don't know. You see those videos of the guys that, that you know, in, in whatever native country they're in and, and they yeah. tap them on the head and they, they, they put their hand under their chin and they're doing all kinds of things. But man, I don't, I, I just, I think that's a little walking a little too close, flying a little too close to the sun for me. You know, <laughs> like, I don't think yeah. I would be doing that, but I mean, that's, it happens. But the thing is like one of my favorite things to say about that is like, cause I've been handling venomous snakes since I was a teenager and I've grown up around them. Like it's been a passion of mine for many years. A lot, there's a huge difference between perceived danger and calculated danger, mm -hmm. like perceived risk, calculated risk. So I always like to pull that in perspective because for us, when we're handling venomous snakes, we know what's safe and what's not. And we have a lot of training and experience in it. So for me, 
I never really go above 30% risk, like by my calculations. Mm -hmm. However, my 30% risk looks like 90% (laughs) risk to someone who doesn't understand these animals, has never worked with them, has never been a part of anything like that. So that little shift in perception is big. And I like to always bring that in because people don't really think about that. But yeah, they're so I, we, we don't take as much risk as people think it is. Right. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, there's always risk involved in anything that you do. But, you know, a good example is like, you know, people that drive motorcycles. You know, I mean, people die in motorcycle crashes every year. We wow. know it's dangerous. If yeah. you've ever owned a motorcycle, I'm sure your parents told you not to do it. Yeah, you know, for sure. But you love it and you just do it. And it's really very similar to what we do. Like I work with alligators and pythons and venomous snakes, and I know that they can kill me but I love it so much. I don't care. I accept that risk and go forward with it just because I know what I'm getting into, but that passion and drive is so strong. Nothing's going to stop me. Hmm. I like it. So what's next for you? (sighs) Well, (laughs) I don't know, really. I'm kind of waiting. Vegan bodybuilding uh, contest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're getting there that way <laughs> but uh I, I i'm kind of in a transitional period right now so one of the things i'm really looking to do is, is start up the youtube and really get that going and uh i've got a lot of footage saved up but i really just need to find like a professional editor that can help me out with that kind of stuff because i really just don't have the time to edit all that all that footage, but yeah. I got the channel up and running. Uh, Snakeaholic is all my other stuff is, and uh, I've already I've been monetized and everything like that. I'm just trying to actually start producing more content on a regular basis. So that's a big one. And and overall, for my whole life, like dude, Steve Irwin was my idol. That's how I. That's why I'm here today. And in the back of my brain, I know that that's where I want to go. Like I want to go to TV and everything like that. It's, it's on my to-do list and I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get there, but I know I'm going to get there eventually. So I don't know what's going to happen in the next, you know, year, two years, three years. But my big thing is just, just go with the flow, just be motivated, be, you know, dedicated and passionate about what you do and just Go with the flow. See what happens. I love it. You can man. only control so much of your life. I love it. You're 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 passionate about what you do, and it's it's obvious it comes through. And you got so much knowledge about all these animals and everything that you're doing. It's it's really cool. I'm I'm really happy to have you on the show and catch up with you again. Um, so Snakeaholic, you can find him on every every platform pretty much his youtube thing that's what you're that's what he's building right now. But uh, yeah, if there's any editors out there that want want a want an opportunity at, at watching somebody handle a King Cobra, uh, <laughs> call him up. <laughs> Sounds awesome, man. Kevin, thanks yeah. so much for being on the show and, uh, yeah, I appreciate absolutely. it, man. I appreciate yeah, it. We'll do it. Me. We'll do it again. Yeah. Pleasure as always, man. All right. Thanks. See you. All right. Thanks, Tom. Take care.